Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Alicia. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? How's how's life? Are you up in Hudson Valley or? I am. Yeah, I've I've been out of the city now pretty much since March. Um, I'm up in Kingston, New York, which uh, it's you know it's beautiful up here. It's a, an amazing time to be up here too because the leaves are all changing and yeah, it's 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 been really nice. Uh, that is uh, probably the best place to be in in quarantine. I think. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, I wanted to talk to you about Diane de Prima passed away this week, the poet, and you posted about her food writing on Instagram. Um, how did you encounter her food writing and, and why uh, do you think it's significant? Yeah. Um, so, gosh, rest in peace, Diane. Um, yeah. That was, you know, we've lost so many people this year, obviously. Um, and for some reason, this her death just like really really hit me yesterday um i you know have have read her work probably since i guess my late teens or so um i came across her for the first time actually through city lights books in san francisco where um i was living when i was 18 and um you know it's a great kind of iconic bookstore and it's owned by lawrence ferlinghetti who's one of the kind of pioneer beat poets and, you know, I had never really read much um, beat poetry or beat writing from from female writers. Um, and so when I came across her book, Dinners and Nightmares, I mean, one, the title just kind of right. stuck out to me because I was like, oh, gosh, is this, you know, what is this going to be about? And I started reading it. And yeah, it just it chronicles, you know, her early days as a beat poet in New York, um, the places she lived, the people she lived with and what she ate. And it was just such a cool kind of effortless feeling chronicle of like almost like a daily food diary, but she really weaves a lot of her poetry in and out of it. And um, it's just, yeah, one of my favorite books ever. And like I said in that post, um, I really just wish that she had written about food more, <laughs> but as it as it stands, I'll just cherish this book, Dinners and Nightmares. <laughs> right. No, it's interesting because I didn't realize she did any like <laughs> excuse me focus food writing but i know in in her in her poetry food does come up so much and even in um a memoir i i quoted her memoir where she was talking about being taught to cook at a young age and you know the scars from the hot oil being part of the pain of being a woman and so i it was so interesting to see your piece because I was like, I knew that there had to be <laughs> some some yeah. focused food writing from her. But yeah, we haven't heard enough about her. And I hope that now that she has passed, un unfortunately, we'll probably hear so much more um, and, and see the, the books reissued, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. For sure. I hope so. I mean, I've already like, I immediately got on eBay and was like, okay, what of her, you know, anthology am I missing? And right. and there was actually so much that, um, you know, I maybe own Dinners and Nightmares, Memoirs of a Beatnik. And then um, she has a book of poetry, really beautiful, called This Kind of Bird Flies Backwards. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, she she put out so many, um, right. you know, small you know, self-published books. And yeah, as soon as you check on eBay, those those prices are going up. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Get your hands>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah. Um, so I grew up between 
Phoenix, Arizona, and San Francisco mostly. Um, bounced back and forth quite a bit when I was a kid, but those are kind of the two main homes. Um, and yeah, in in Phoenix, you know, um, our my 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 eating style and and how things were in in the home were definitely much more suburban. Um, you know, my mom loved to cook things like chicken and dumplings. And, you know, we had some family recipes passed down for things like Yorkshire pudding. And it was just kind of, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, totally delicious, but um, it felt, you know, like a pretty kind of standard um, suburban diet for the time, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, And I should give my mom more credit, though. Actually, one of her favorite books was um, Sunset Magazine issued this like southwestern cookbook i think it came out in the late 70s um and so we did on occasion have like you know enchiladas and her she loved making chimichangas which is you know a fried burrito essentially um so there was like some variation in there but um you know it was yeah it was delicious kind of comfort food um and then when we my mom and i moved to san francisco and you know, the culinary landscape, I guess, so to speak, and also just cooking style at home completely changed um, because she was then a single mother raising me and she was working full time. And so I really kind of was put on my own in terms of like, let's figure out how to get dinner on the table and and all that. And um, lucky for us, we lived in Chinatown and I went to school in Chinatown. So you know, by age like nine, 10, I was exposed to so many, you know, so much incredible food. Like suddenly I was eating, you know, egg custard tarts and char siu bao and rice, rice noodle rolls and, and all just all this great dim sum. So I think, you know, San Francisco really kind of expanded my mind, certainly, but also hers, like her, you know, culinary style kind of shifted then. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, the way that I was eating in, in San Francisco kind of carries over to a lot of my curiosity about food now. Right, right. And how did you get into wine and natural wine specifically? Yeah, so I won't say that I was ever really into wine until I discovered natural wine. Um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I moved to New York when I was 18 and I think like a lot of people that age and then going into your early twenties, like I was just kind of, I was going out to restaurants with friends and going to bars and would kind of just like drink whatever was put in front of me. (laughs) Um, You know, I didn't really distinguish between like, you know, ordering a, a vodka soda or a beer or whatever when we were out at bars on the weekend. And um, wine was kind of always this thing that felt like it was for quieter nights, maybe if we're sitting at an Italian restaurant or, you know, I'm having a nice night at home with friends and we would just get some like generic bottle of red wine, um, usually not spending more than like $10 on the bottle. And I never really... I just never really thought about wine. I, you know, I enjoyed it, but I, I really, I never connected it to anything bigger than just this like alcoholic beverage. And it wasn't until um, I started to learn about natural wine that 
you know, this whole world kind of opened up and I understood like, oh, this is an agricultural product and, and wine is, is basically like food. And that happened mostly because of two things. Um, so like I said, I'm, I'm up in Kingston and I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time up here the past 10 years, my partner's from the area. And a really great wine shop opened about, I think about nine years ago, and it's called Kingston Wine Co. And it was the first wine shop that I had ever gone into that actually felt like, you know, my people were running it. And they were young people that were really excited about what they were selling. And suddenly I was seeing these bottles that like, you know, had really creative labels and the staff there just like wanted to chat about things and wanted to know what I was looking for. And it just felt like this really warm kind of welcoming vibe, you know, it didn't feel like it was purely transactional anymore. Um, and then at about the same time, I, I was um, up in the Finger Lakes in Western New York, where I have a bit of family. And as we might know, the Finger Lakes is, you know, New York's kind of wine country, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, I came across this small winery called Bloomer Creek. And it turned out that Kim and Deborah, the winemakers, were actually basically New York's, um, you know, pioneering natural winemakers. And so I had the privilege of, you know, kind of learning from them and understanding, like, the, the whole history behind natural agriculture in New York. And it really just it changed everything in, in, in that kind of one to two year time. Um, I, you know, I really kind of couldn't look back at that point and, and keep drinking those, those generic bottles that I had been for the previous 10 years. <laughs> right. And you, then you launched the wine zine. There have been four issues so far, you know, what inspired the creation of that and how do you approach the creation and curation of each issue, which each, do they, does each issue kind of have a a theme or, you know, basically how did the wine zine start and and, and how do you keep going? Yeah. um, So they are unthemed. Um, that was actually that was a pretty early decision um, for us to keep them unthemed, mostly because you know the content in each magazine in each issue um, really kind of just comes from I think what we are really curious about in that given time. Um, most most of I guess each issue takes about five to six months to put together. And so I think I've, I always felt that, you know, doing a themed issue would kind of stifle us in terms of like what we were able to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, of course, like in, in a six month span of time, so much can happen um, in, you know, just culturally with wine, but also, you know, agriculturally or politically, like with tariffs constantly changing and things like that. Like we kind of needed to be a little bit more on the edge of our seats with how we were coming up with content. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of why I, I stay away from themed issues. But um, in terms of how we come up with content, you know, I've mostly been on my own um, for these four issues in terms of our editorial direction. Um, so the magazine has always really been just sort of a fanzine by me <laughs> about 
you know, what it is that I'm really curious about in wine. Um, for the next issue, for issue five, I've actually brought on two wonderful editors, um, Nadia Pugh, who's going to be my associate editor, and she's based in California and is going to be working kind of more generally on the magazine. And then um, Farah Barrow, who's based in Beirut and is going to be focused on that region. Um, so this is the first time that I'm kind of bringing in, you know, two outside minds to really start to curate the content and think about stories in a way outside of my own brain, <laughs> which I'm really, really excited about. Because um, I was just, you know, I was nervous that like, uh, you know, it was, it was maybe starting to look a little bit too inward, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, my, I, I really have my ear to the ground in terms of new producers and new wine shops and new wine bars and what people are talking about. But no matter how much I'm paying attention, um, things are always going to be outside of my vision. You know, Mm -hmm. there are always going to be things happening elsewhere that I'm just not capable of, of knowing. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm super excited to bring, to kind of expand my team. Right. And how do you figure out who you want to write for each issues? Are you getting pitches or are you mostly assigning? Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly assigning for the next issue. I am opening it up to pitches. Um, I'm, I've mostly only ever commissioned stories just because one, I always felt like I had an idea of what I wanted to get into the magazine. Um, but also I was, I was really terrified about like the moment that I opened pitches. Gosh, and this probably sounds so crazy, but, um, (laughs) that like I wasn't going to be able to handle the volume (laughs) of pitches that I might get, um, which is of course, you know, we're a tiny magazine, like, come on, I'm not like wine enthusiast or something, but, um, but I was always just a little, I, I've always been very like slow and steady about the growth of the magazine. And, you know, I've, I've always just kind of taken things at my own speed, um, in order to not, you know, get too overwhelmed like this has always been a side project for me um pretty much until you know last year um when it it kind of became a little bit more full-time especially with the book but um yeah I've always just kind of wanted to take things slow and for that reason I wasn't accepting pitches but now I think we're in a good position to um with the next issue so I'm excited to bring on some new writers That's super exciting. Yeah. And, you know, your book, which you just mentioned, Wine Unfiltered, um, is such a wonderful user's guide to the world of natural wine, which doesn't have an official definition. And so much of the coverage of natural wine in mainstream outlets has been dismissive to my in my perspective. And I've always found it a little bit annoying. Like one thing I said, I think when there, there was a New Yorker piece about um, natural wine. And and it made it seem as though everyone in the world lived in Brooklyn and was like having orange wine poured down their throat by by force. Um, But you were writing your book kind of amid this uh, mainstream awareness and and gaze upon natural wine. Um, So, you know, how did you come to your way of writing about it and thinking about it? And what kind of guided you along as you were writing your book and how you wanted to approach um, the topic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I definitely, I was, I was reading those articles as they were coming out as I was writing my book. And I, I have to admit, I was totally freaked out. You know, I was like, Oh my God, like, 
you know, mainstream media is already like making fun of this thing and dismissing it and writing it off as some, you know, trendy, hype filled, whatever. Um, And here I am about to put a book out on it. Like, is this just going to be like, by the time this comes out is, are people just going to be super dismissive of, of what we're doing? But, you know, the one super grounding thing about that is I knew that I had my community within the wine scene. And I knew that, you know, I had writers there and, and readers and people who really did care about the who and the what and the why. And they weren't just paying attention to, you know, what bars were pouring orange wine or whatever. Um, And in that way, I think it always felt really good to be writing a primer on natural wine and kind of an introductory guide. Um, Not that I could have written anything more advanced than that, because Mm -hmm. let's be honest, I'm very new to natural wine. (laughs) So an introductory guide was like my speed, you know, it was perfect for me. But I always felt, you know, confident in that approach because I, I know that there will always be new people to this community who maybe need to have the basics explained to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of those people at one point, and I didn't really have a book like that. And, um, you know, to your, to your question just regarding, I think, how I approached the book and, and how I, you know, what my kind of style was with it, um, I think it's, you know, it was really the same way that I approached the the editorial direction of the magazine, um, which is just let's, I, you know, I, I always want to speak to people kind of um, at their level and, at, you know, at a very kind of understanding, like, learn with me, not from me approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's kind of create a bit of a conversation and ask questions together. I, I never wanted to be that kind of preachy wine person that's like, drink this, not that, or, you know, um, you should be drinking this because it's X, Y, or Z. It's more like, let's kind of create this ongoing dialogue about maybe why we should be changing the ways that we drink or, you know, um, what are, you know, what do these winemakers think about the way that they're farming and just kind of keeping things a little bit more transparent, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, how do you define natural wine if someone asks you? Yeah, so, <laughs> oh, the question. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when I'm talking about natural wine, um, what I'm referring to is wine made with grapes that um, were not sprayed with synthetic pesticides or herbicides for the most part. Um, it's minimally fined or filtered, you know, so fining is, um, basically a process that allows a winemaker to strip sediment from the wine using a binding agent. And then a filter, the filtering process is, you know, just like basically a a physical filter that will remove sediment from a wine. Um, and it has the, you know, it has the benefit of, of clarifying the wine a bit, um, among other things, but, um, so no fining or filtering, no synthetic uh, grapes, and um, <laughs> what else? I should have my book in front of me. Um, no, uh, little to no added um, added additives. Let's say um, so. We're talking about no chaptalization, which is like adding uh, sugar to a wine in order to spike the alcohol content. Um, 
also pretty crucial is um, the use of native or indigenous yeast. Um, so this is just using the yeast that is present uh, on the grapes, in the vineyard, and in the cellar, and not using um, commercial or inoculated yeast to kick off the fermentation process. Um, and then, you know, I, I think there are there are some sort of there's a little bit of give and take elsewhere, but these are sort of the core things I think um, that that most of the community would would agree makes a natural wine. Um, or more simply said, um, you know, nothing, nothing given, nothing taken away. Gosh, I just got that wrong, but yeah. <laughs> well, for you, is drinking wine a political act? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think with anything that um, I think we consume, we can think of that as being a political act. Um, with with wine in particular, it touches so many aspects. You know, uh, how was the labor treated that was involved in in the production of the wine? Um, you know, what were the agricultural processes? How does it look for the environment, or how does it impact the environment? Um, I think there are so many ways that we can think of, of wine being a political thing. And also just for me, it's about, you know, where and, and how do I want to spend my money? Um, you know, do I want to have it go to a small family farm in, in Western New York as opposed to a giant anonymous corporation in Napa? Absolutely. Um, or even spending my money at a, you know, at a small locally owned shop versus a big chain I think all of those things add up, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Catherine, for coming on. Thank you, Alicia.